namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa buddhang dhammang sankhang namasami so good afternoon we have our best cooling system going we as human beings we have the capacity to notice how things are so not only can i feel hot i can notice that i'm feeling hot simple enough we also have a capacity to see not only is it hot but i'm reacting to the heat i'm averse to the heat i don't like the heat we can do things we can move towards coolness so here we do our maximum best to get it as cool as possible but i don't know about you during this meditation my head was roasting so i had a roasting head and a cool face so i had both pleasure and pain yeah and as much as i can do things to create comfort and ease in a way which isn't immoral it's just natural and normal i will inevitably have a limited capacity to do that i can't always get what i want right that's sort of humanity 101 and if you don't realize that you're in trouble and any anyone thinks you can now they can always get what they want is a fool right and yet we can very much get stuck in wanting things to be other than they are when we can't really change them or adjust them but we can do things we can put on the he- we can put on the cooling we can move towards a, a shady space and so on and so forth so with de- without denying the capacity we humans have to make life comfortable and easeful and beautiful without denying that. Uh, There's another part of our um, wisdom and intelligence which can take the limitations of life and learn how to be at peace with those. And that is, I mean, that's a hugely important thing, obviously. If we can't be with the limitations of our own body, the environment, our social institutions, all the rest of it, then we're forever unhappy, suffering, reacting, judging, and the whole, you know, the whole bit of human suffering. So, uh, like during right now here at the monastery, we've entered a period called the Rains Retreat, the Vasa. And and during that time, we train in all the sort of monastic disciplines and rules that our order uh, is given from the time of the Buddha. And these disciplines and rules and protocols and ways of living really uh, isn't something that lay people hear about because they're not here at the monastery. It's available. It's not esoteric. But the Buddha, when when he taught his way and when he was asked when he was dying, what do you leave? Do you leave a teacher? Or what do you leave for us as you pass away? Who will who will lead this community, and he said, I would leave you the Dhamma and the Vinaya. 
and the Dhamma is the truth of the way things are. Uh, and then it's what the truth he was pointing to is why we suffer and how not to suffer. The human condition of suffering and how to get out of that. And that's the Dharma. And the Vinaya, the Vinaya was a way of living together for a community of men or a community of women to live together in ways that encouraged spiritual aspiration, that encouraged harmony, that encouraged um, a way of communication, sharing of resources, legal processes, etiquettes, and so on and so forth that was conducive to becoming more awake, becoming more mindful, and leading away from suffering. So we have, as you notice, we have some younger members of the community now. We have three Anagarikas and two Samaneras. And I often, because I've been at this for a while now, I kind of forget sometimes what it's about. Not, not totally. <laughs> but the whole nature of, say, training as a monastic, is to train in, in a certain character that builds a foundation for enlightenment. And the way I look at that is that we, we as human beings, we have personalities. So in our Sangha, we have extroverts and introverts, people who are uh, very good with their hands, people who are very good uh, in other areas of administration, um, some who meditate well, some who don't meditate well. So there's a mix of people. That, that live here. And so there's, there's, there's kind of personality types, right? We all have that. And that will always be pretty much similar as we, as we age. So I think of the two teachers, the three teachers that have influenced me, Ajahn Chah, Ajahn Sumedho, and Lumpur Liam, how they were all very different characters, I think very accomplished in their spiritual life, but the way they... Um, express themselves, Ajahn Chah as opposed to Yon Paulian, very, very different. One very charismatic, uh, really engaging, the other much more quiet and reserved. I would say that's personality. But character, the way I look at character, is like common qualities that we can all develop. Uh, so you could be an extrovert or an introvert, but patience would be something that you and I could agree upon that's quite important. So patience is a foundation for enlightenment. So just being in this room and maybe falling asleep with the heat or you've got the fan in your face or it's too hot or whatever, well, what do you do with that? You can leave, right? You can go to the kitchen and put an ice pack on your head. You can do that, but we sort of, well, no, let's stay here. Let's be with this. And you're, you're faced with a challenge of having the unpleasant and how can I be a witness to the unpleasant without suffering, without causing a problem? And so what do I need to do? I need to be patient. Simple enough. But actually, that, that's very profound. Patience is a very profound quality of the human heart. Because much of life is in ir um, in annoying and irritating, and that's the way it'll always be, or disappointing. But much of life is beautiful, too. And much of life can be fulfilling. Not to dismiss that part, but to take those bits where we're not, where our desire patterns can't be fulfilled in that moment, have they, do they have value? Do they have any value? Well, they would in Buddhism because they are the very food for developing a, a type of mind which isn't dependent on sense experience, 
a type of mind which isn't dependent on the pleasant or the unpleasant. If I can be patient with heat, or I can be patient with cold, I can be patient with the good or the bad, I develop an inner refuge, which we call awareness, which is beyond the two, beyond duality. And the more I research that, and the more I incline towards that, I see that's actually much more interesting than pleasure. Peace is more interesting than pleasure. Pleasure is more exciting and more, more, I wouldn't say it's more pleasurable, I wouldn't say that, but it's more attractive, it's easier. Pleasant is more easier, but the price you pay for only having the pleasant is then the unpleasant becomes, brings up aversion, and so on and so forth. So part of our, our training as monastics is to do things carefully, to do things well, to bow well, and so on. And what that's pointing to is that we as human beings have the capacity to move our attention from object to object. Right? I can I can look at the book in front of me, or I can look at the fan above me. I can look at the book and see. I can hear. I can change my attention to different sense bases, right? We do that all the time. But when I do that deliberately, I'm not driven by something interesting on Facebook or something interesting on my iPhone. I don't have an iPhone. <laughs> I'm not, my attention isn't driven by desire. You know, if I'm, if I, if someone is scrolling through an iPhone and they're trying to get something interesting, their attention is being driven by the desire for excitement and interest, right? That's one way we operate. And we all do that. There's nothing wrong with that. But that way of paying attention doesn't really calm the mind. It excites the mind. We're looking for something interesting and exciting. To learn how to pay attention to the neutral, which isn't exciting, isn't it? Just what it does, it puts you to sleep. Because it's not interesting, right? It's not, it's not interesting at all. And you have to bring forth energy, vitality, on the neutral. Now, if you can do that and sustain attention on the neutral, because you're not coming from desire or aversion, you're coming from a different place, your attention begins to have a quality of stillness. You're not trying to get stillness by getting rid of unstillness. Your attention begins to be imbued with a vitality which is not dependent on, the se- on being excited or interested. So I can look at that chanting book in front of me, and if I hold my attention on that, my mind's still. And that stillness isn't something that it, it comes from desire. It doesn't really come from the chanting book. It comes from where? It's always there. Stillness is always there. And we miss that stillness and we miss that peace of heart because we're so busy uh, being drawn by pain and pleasure, good and bad, the duality of life. So we have a chance to both shift our attention, hold our attention on something neutral. We have a way of actually training the mind. We can move away from things, like let's say... Um, let's say you were, you came for the dana, right? And then when you were in the dana, maybe someone uh, was rude to you. I'm sure it never happens here. We don't do rude for Buddhists. <laughs> let's say someone was rude to you, and you took it personally, right? Now that creates a memory, right? Just a memory. 
And then you sit down and meditate, and that memory pops up. Rude. And what do you do with that memory? Well, usually you pursue it with thought. How could they do that? Idiots. I'm never coming to Tisserna again. Idiots. Idiots. But each time, how do you keep anger going? How do you keep aversion going? You have to remember the memory. You have to keep stimulating your mind with that memory. You have to go to it. And you can do that. You know, you, you know people will, uh, in some countries, they'll hold out, like I was just reading an uh, interesting account of the Deep South in the States by uh, a travel writer called Theroux. And he goes into a restaurant, and he's from Massachusetts, so he's a Yankee. And, uh, and he's in Vicksburg, I think, or was it Sherman, or one of the generals in the, in the Civil War, uh, stole Vicksburg for 40 days. So the woman in the restaurant, 150 years later, says to him, you made us eat rats. 150 years later, <laughs> it's not my fault, he says. So she has to hold a memory of an event which happened to her clan, to her family, and she has to sustain that memory. So she looks at the Yankee, and she doesn't see the Yankee. She sees her memory, and she holds the memory, and she becomes that person, that angry, alienated person. So, so we have the capacity to notice that. But we also have, unfortunately, the capacity to believe in that and to follow that and get lost in that. So what would you do if, if someone wasn't, was rude to you or you could come and complain to me <laughs> and you would get your money back or something like that? Or, or you could look at the very nature of aversion and memory. You can make that a project about how the mind works. Now that to me seems much more fruitful because rudeness is going to be a part of life until you die. It's just the way it is. People, you know, we, we, we conflict with each other. But if you actually made it a project of looking at how the mind works as opposed to this particular incident, and it's not just about this incident, it's about the, the why my mind suffers. That to me is a very mature way of understanding yourself, right? That to me seems rather dharma. That's what the Buddha is asking us to do. He's not saying that you like to be insulted. He's not saying that you should not feel anything. What he's saying, I think, is to us is, what did your suffering depend upon? How does it arise? And so, what would be the way out? How might you extricate yourself from that suffering? So, you're sitting here, and the memory comes up, and now you say, oh, this is memory. And rather than following the story or the narrative, what do you do? You listen to sound. You change the sense base. You go to another sense object. And then your mind comes up again with a memory. And now, oh, that's memory. And then you feel your hands. And the memory comes up. You know it's memory. And then you listen to the sound. And you keep moving your attention now deliberately, not from repression, not from aversion, but from wisdom. Because you know if you dwell in that memory, you're always going to be angry. You're always going to be there. That's always going to condition you. Right? So now you have skill. Now you see, oh, this is memory. Memory feels this way. And then, yeah, memory feels that way, but 
what does heat feel like? Now, to pay attention to heat or wind, you can't be thinking about history. You can't do both. You have to do one or the other. So as you choose, as you see, let's say, this is just one of many patterns we suffer from, but as you see that 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 pursuit of negative memory is suffering, and you begin to say, well, it really doesn't matter what the incident was. It really doesn't matter who insulted me. It's a matter more, how can I be free within all insults? Because life is very, ins- I mean, just being in this body is a huge insult, don't you think? <laughs> it's just the stuff you have to put up with. So, so you, you, you say, no, 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 I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to see, can I stay peaceful within the compliments and the insults of life? How can I do that? And that seems to me much more interesting project, and of course, much more workable. So I, I begin to look at, like, how, how does, in this case, how does anger pattern in my mind? How does it arise? How do I get obsessed with angry thoughts? Memory. This memory triggers something, and then there's resentment, la- lack of forgiveness, and then I say, oh yeah, I see, but what's the sound like now? And then if you hold your attention on sound, your mind is silent. It can't be thinking and listening to sound at the same time. It can't do it. It does one or the other. And then the memory comes up, and then, oh, I'm going to forgive them. I don't care what that monk said, blah, 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 blah. And then, oh, that's anger. And then, yeah, well, what's the sound? And it's silent again. Now, you have to train yourself. And this is not easy, because the habit, the habit is quite often to go with the anger because it's more exciting, more interesting, and that's what you've been doing for a few years. So to do the other, it's not repressive. You're not, re- you're not repressing anything. You're just saying, yeah, sure, that's an event. There's a historical event of memory, but there's also this present event called sound. And the present event is dharma. It's not something you're creating. You're not creating sound. You're not creating heat. It isn't something your mind is creating from history or, or self or whatever. It just knows. Heat feels this way. And you're keeping your mi- mind back to silence and to stillness and to peace. And the, more you, the better you get at it, the less you get fooled by these different patterns that we all, that we all suffer from. It takes something like anxiety. Um, how many pe- how, you know, anxiety is natural. There's nothing wrong with anxiety. Except if we don't under understand anxiety as an object and we just pursue it. So you have, mm, let's say you get some kind of terrible me- medical diagnosis or something's happening with a family or the planet is melting or whatever it is. And, you st- and, and your mind, let's say you just you know, read the news. I don't recommend it, but if, <laughs> if you happen to read the news about the latest horrible thing that's going on, what happens? Uh, like maybe you read the news about, what would it be, uh, let's say, what tra- trade war now or something, right? Um, Mr. Trump is going to charge taxes for, I don't follow it so closely, but let's say that your job is dependent on, on selling things in America, right? And now there's a huge tariff going to come on the products that your company makes. So you might be out of work. So you have to plan. But what's anxiety? What would anxiety be there? Well, anxiety be a memory of what? I might lose my job. I might lose my job. 
Now, to stay anxious, you have to keep thinking, I might lose my job. Now, you might, you might think, well, the way out is to figure out how not to lose, lose my job. And you might spend the whole day thinking how I might not lose my job. And then you watch the news cycle and think, I might lose my job. <laughs> you might mess with out of it. Right? So without being uh, sort of silly and, and vacuous, making plans and doing due diligence and so on, life is uncertain. The future is uncertain. You don't know. You don't know what's going to happen. And anxiety is a natural phenomenon, but we don't have to pursue it. We don't have to get reborn into the patterns of anxiety. We can know anxiety is an object. And when you know anxiety is an object, you can listen to sound. You do the same thing. Your mind starts to uh, plan uh, in an anxious way about what are we going to do and it's going to happen then, and then we'll do that and then we'll do that and then you say, oh, well that's anxiety, but what's the color of that uh, screen over here? And I look at color and I hold my attention on color. And to hold my attention on color, I can't be thinking anxious thoughts. I can't do both at the same time. Now, I, I need to do that. I need to train in that because the habit and the, the, the sort of tempting part of all this is to worry. Because that's what I've been doing. And somehow it feels comfortable or, or real, but actually you never get anywhere with it. So, I, it won't bite you, that promise. It's a Buddhist bee. <laughs> we don't bite. You know, we don't insult. We don't do that. So what we're training in, in, in Buddhist meditation is not some kind of exalted experience. It's actually learning how to be with the ordinary, like a bee buzzing in the... I got my eye in the shanti. It's interesting, isn't it? Just to allow something unpleasant like a bee to go around your head. Huh? I'm challenging you. <laughs> Uh, anyway, so so y- you get the idea that we, we live in an ordinary world, uh, which has extraordinary things going on, but what we sometimes don't train ourselves is to be present with the way things are. We tend to live much of our lives in the past and future, don't we? If you look at the content of your thinking mind, how much of it was about yesterday and tomorrow, and how much did you notice the color of the skirt? or the color of a green tree. Hmm? Now, I was, I was saying this to, to, to the Sangha the other day, there's, a, there's an interesting, interesting difference between the sensualist and the person who is aware and awake. The sensualist looks at things in order to feel sensual pleasure. So they look at art or they listen to music with a desire to maximize pleasure and minimize pain. We're, doing s- we're, we're looking at things, but we're no longer looking at them with a desire for pleasure. We're looking at them for the sake of looking itself. Because in looking, and just looking, and seeing, and just seeing, behind it there is silence and peace. So the, the sensualist takes the ice cream cone and licks the heck about it, out of it, <laughs> trying to maximize their pleasure, which is allowed until you're 14 years old. After that, <laughs> we have a bigger program for you. And that is to taste the ice cream cone 
and say, oh, tasting is this way. Well, that's a more more interesting kind of thing, a little bit more boring maybe for the 14-year-old, but you just, what is taste like? And then in the taste, there is silence. So then you taste something which is like, like in Thailand sometimes we had very bitter foods, because one of the things in a Thai palate was bitter. They had bitter gourd and things like that, which my palate wasn't used to. And then and in our in our food scene, it was very interesting because we just got stuff labeled ladled into our bowls. It was all nice mess. And uh, every now and then I hit something which would be uh, either like a dynamite chili, which would have me in deep tears, or uh, bitter gourd. And then at first I said, yuck. And then I said, well, wait, wait, wait. What does yuck feel like? Before I go to yuck, right? Before I create yuck, <laughs> we're going to call this the yuck talk. Um, be <laughs> before I go there, what does it actually feel like before I go to aversion, right? And oh, this is unpleasant. But then the unpleasant becomes neutral. Unless it's poisonous and then I spit it out. No problem. So we, we start to play with this. So like if you're with a person and you find them a bit annoying and irritating, welcome to humanity, but, <laughs> but you know, you, you actually have the presence of mind, so oh, this is annoying. If they're abusive, you walk away, fine. But just to like be with a person who gets up your nose. And so this is what annoyance feels like. That brings you to calm rather than to argument. Or vice versa, you're attracted to someone and you're in a stable relationship and it's not appropriate. Oh, this is what attraction feels like. It feels that way. And you come back to neutrality. And, and so this kind of uh, awareness or mindfulness or presence, we're trying to really encourage that throughout the day, throughout the day. And one of the things that makes it difficult is that in, in, in cultures where intelligence is very much uh, fostered and where the intellect is much developed, there is a tendency just to mull things over, to constantly be analyzing and thinking about them and self-analyzing and other analyzing. So there was an addiction to thought. You know, I was kind of trying to figure something out. But actually, aversion, you don't have to figure it out. Just don't go there. So sometimes, you know, well, why am I so averse? And, you know, I should really like that person. But you're still preoccupied with aversion. Or why am I so anxious? I shouldn't be so anxious. There's no really... Well, but there is a problem. You're still occupied by uh, anxiety. But listening to sound, you're not occupied by it anymore. So one of the ways I like to talk about freedom from a Buddhist perspective is non-preoccupation. It's a language I use. Non-preoccupation. I, I, I have a memory of anger that comes up into mind. And I find myself I'm preoccupied with it, trying to figure out what I'm going to say to this person. I'll never forgive them. Oh God, I have to meet them at work tomorrow. That's preoccupation. And then I notice it, and I say, yeah, but what's the sound of the robin? And I hold my attention to that. Now I'm preoccupation. I'm not preoccupied. So in, in, this, in this life of introspection and, and looking at your own mind, you really want to look at what are you preoccupied with? How much of the in a 24-hour cycle, are you preoccupied with unskillful things? And rather than, than preoccupy yourself with how not to be preoccupied, that's what we do, rather just don't go there. Don't think about it. Huh? It's not repressive. It's just, is this preoccupation really skillful? Is it useful? Is it just a kind of mental 
mental habit that we get into. And the more you, you touch reality, that this is the way it is now, there's heat, there's sound, there's pressure, it's like this. And that's what we mean by dharma, the suchness of things. And in the suchness of things, there's no problem. And then our desire minds and our habits and patterns, they begin to take over, and it becomes very, very complex. Very com- so peace is very simple. Our thinking mind and desire, that's very, very complex. So my teachers always say, just go back to the simple. And, and I remember some of the best advice Agent Sumedho, I'd go to him with a deep problem, and he'd look at me and say, don't think about it. <laughs> I expected some, you know, some fantastic analysis, and don't think about it. Oh, okay. <laughs> I never thought of that. So certainly, you know, at times we do have to think about things and plan and, and, and analyze and so on, but that's, I, I find, w- you know, a lot of it's just overdone. You should overdo it and begin to touch the silence of the mind, the stillness of mind, begin to appreciate that. And from that, you have a sense of presence which is very adaptive. It can very adapt to life and, and respond in a good way. It's not that you're some kind of a Buddhist zombie, that you're not plugged into life, actually more plugged into life. 